This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is the Italian American podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. All right. Today we have a really interesting episode, first of a series of episodes, where we're going to dive into this idea of this neo-bourbon movement and really you know, when we think of Southern Italy, a lot of times we think of farms, peasants, people that are very poor, which is why our ancestors came here. But today paints a little bit of a different picture of that. How you doing, Dolores? Doing pretty well, Anthony. Yeah, this episode is going to be interesting. Well, at least at least I hope <laughs> to everyone. Uh, certainly you and I didn't know a lot of what we are about to hear. Putting together this show, it was certainly a lot of work. And I really hope that it helps our listeners to understand where they come from some more and also to deepen their pride in particular in being Southern Italian. We have so many uh, stereotypes and so many stigmas in a way that we live with as Southern Italians. I don't want to get into it too much because we're going to talk about it in the show as if our culture is maybe subpar than the North of Italy or even other European countries. And this show, the Neo-Bourbon movement is really about recapturing that pride in a very, very rich history. Right. It's going to kind of explain to you a Southern Italy that you haven't probably heard about as opposed to the stories that you have heard. And our guests, who I'll introduce momentarily, John Viola and the O'Boyle brothers who are Italian, and you'll hear a little bit more about them in, <laughs> in a minute. Don't um, let the name fool you. Don't let the name fool you. And in the story segment at the end of this episode, Dolores is going to read an excerpt from one of the books that's mentioned in the interview segment. And the book is Between Saltwater and Holy Water by Tommaso Astarita. All right. So before I introduce our guests, we'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsors for this podcast episode. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NIAF, we know there's nothing more important than family, and we invite you to be a part of ours. We work hard to protect our great heritage, to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, we provide young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family. So, Anthony, before we get into the interview, I just want to say that I've been watching some great Italian shows on Verizon Fios. I know you're always mentioning them to me. It's funny, you know, because when I was a little girl, my father always watched Italian television. It was on nonstop. And he used to yell at me to watch with him. You know, he'd be like, sit here, learn Italian, learn Italian. And now that I'm older, I do watch it all the time. And it really does help me to improve my Italian. I agree. It totally does. And of course, today you've got Mediaset Italia. That's right. All the best programming from Italy's top channels are put together in one channel. So there's cooking shows, drama series, movies, and it really helps you to stay connected to Italian culture in real time because they're the same shows that Italians are watching. Right now, I'm caught in this drama. It's a long serial with a couple seasons called Solo per Amore, Destini Incrociati, or For Love Alone, Cross Destinies. So if you can get into one of those shows and just watch episode after episode, it's like getting hooked onto any show you might watch, like on Netflix. You get caught up in it and you get immersed in the culture and you really get to practice learning Italian. Absolutely. I know this firsthand for myself. I mean, 
when you're watching these shows and you're listening to the pace of the language, it's extremely helpful to learning Italian. And right now, our listeners can get 50% off their Italian language package for six months, which features Mediaset Italia and Rai Italia. And if you're a new customer for $79.99 per month for your first year with a two-year contract, you can get 150 megabyte speed internet, custom TV, and phone. That's right. So if you're interested, you can call Verizon Fios at 1-888-755-751 to subscribe. And of course, we'll link to that number in our show notes as well. All right. Now I'm going to give our guests just a brief introduction because you'll learn more about them in the episode. But John Viola is the president of the National Italian American Foundation. You just heard him as one of our sponsors in the episode and you hear him um, on all of our episodes. And he's also been a guest before. John's done so much for the Italian American community and we always love catching up with him. And then we also have Pat and Anthony O'Boyle, the O'Boyle brothers, and all three of them are knights in the sacred military Constantinian order of St. George. And you'll hear a little bit more about the order as well in the episode, but they're all knights because they are so passionate about the topic that we discuss in this episode. And you'll really see how all of this is connected as the episode unfolds. But now I'd like to kick it over to Dolores to give us a quote to bring us in to the episode. So this quote is from one of the articles we mentioned at the start of this episode. Let us reconstruct our historical memory, reconstruct our pride in being Southern Italian. As I've said before, one of the most exciting parts of producing this show is the people Anthony and I get to meet. You know, as much as I grew up in a community of Italian Americans, it wasn't until I started hosting the Italian American podcast that I really began to realize how vibrant, passionate, and alive our community still remains. Most inspiring is all the young people we meet and forge friendships with. So many young Italian Americans revisiting and exploring their heritage through a new lens in new ways. In our last episode, Mallory said something along the lines of, every other week there's a news story in the New York Times about the last Italian deli in the last Italian town creating the last Italian salami before it closes. Now, her point was, regardless of what the media says, our culture is both changing and constant, but it's not dying. And I think our podcast community really demonstrates that as well. So the three young men featured in this episode, the first in a series, have each become good friends of mine. They're each smart, funny, dynamic Italian-Americans who have made their culture and heritage a center point of their lives. So much so that each one of them is part of one of the most ancient orders of knighthood, which continues to be bestowed upon initiated members by heirs of the Bourbons, the last monarchy to reign over the kingdom of the two Sicilies. Now, that's probably a lot to take in, but we're going to break it down throughout this episode. So don't worry too much about that just yet. Now, the more time I spent with them, the more I began to learn things I didn't know. I have a stack of books long as my arm that they've recommended to me. And of course, we'll link to those books. So I want to say at the outset before we get started here that this is not meant in any way to be an exhaustive history or even an official one. You know, we're not historians and I'm learning all of this right along with you. But Anthony and I just wanted to offer you another side of the historical record, one that is slowly gaining momentum in Southern Italy about our history, our legacy, which is very different than the one we were taught in school. It's another side to the story of why we are Americans. Now, I'm going to pop in and out throughout the rest of the episode just to give some background on what's being discussed or to deconstruct it a little because there's a lot going on and there's a lot to take in. Again, this series is just a starting point, an offering that will hopefully send you on your own journey to learn more. All right, here we go. So we're here with a couple friends, a few friends of ours, and um, we have a really exciting show for you today. It's a topic that I actually learned about relatively recently, thanks to uh, the gentlemen that we're here with today, and it blew my mind what we're about to talk about, and I called Anthony and I said, we have to do a show on this. We have three people here with us today. I'm going to introduce them, and hopefully you'll get to know their voices. All three of them are with the Sacred Military 
Constantinian Order of St. George. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. So we have Pat O'Boyle, who is the Vice Chancellor. Hello. <laughs> and we also have John Viola, who, in addition to being the president and COO of the National Italian American Foundation, you guys have heard John many times. He's on every show with his introduction. He is also the U.S. delegate for the order. Hello, everybody. And then we have Anthony O'Boyle, who is a knight of the order. Hello, everyone. Anthony, you sent me an article a while back. Tell us who wrote this article. It's the article you sent me about neo-Bourbonism. I don't know who the author is, yeah, but it was on, uh, it's on neo-Bourbonici.it, which is a neo-Bourbonist site. Uh, I think the authors are, are based out of Italy. It's really one of the only English language articles that discusses right. uh, what happened with the Bourbon kings, uh, what happened when Garibaldi and the Savoyas invaded. And I like to send that article to people because it's, it's really the only good English source of information that's very basic. It's only a few paragraphs Absolutely, long. It yeah. describes what happened. And uh, I think the last line of the article is something along the lines of, if you want to know more about why you're in America and not in Italy anymore, contact us. Exactly. Yeah. This is uh, from the article, Why We Are Neo-Bourbons. On the cold afternoon of December 27th, 1894, in the town of Arco, province of Trento, Francesco II of Bourbon, the last king of the two Sicilies, died. The Bourbon dynasty no longer governed southern Italy after a reign of 126 years. 100 years after the death of King Francesco, nobody remembers the Bourbons anymore except as a negative symbol of the past. Never has history been so maliciously falsified as it has been with this king and with this dynasty. 126 years of prestige and of glory, of art and culture, of theaters and factories, of laws and achievements, of public works, and archaeological excavations, of order, of security, of riches, and of generosity have all been canceled from our collective memory. So, with that introduction, what is this about? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good, uh, it's a good introduction to have because it's one that tugs at the heartstrings. So, that paragraph and the really interesting and beautiful letter that it leads into is really a testament to the lopsidedness of the unification of Italy and the lopsidedness even more so of its of, of the historical memory of it. And on top of all of that, which brings us together today, is a testament to, you know, we, we have this sort of shared myth as an Italian-American community that says our ancestors left Italy because Italy was bad and they were hungry and they had no opportunity and they came here. And it rarely asks why was Italy bad and why were they hungry and why would they leave their home? And then if you dig to that, then you dig a little further and you say to yourself, if Italy was so bad and things were so difficult, why did no one leave for thousands of years? And then all of a sudden, at one snap in history, everybody up and left. Right. And is it coincidental that that snap in history comes very, very hot on the heels of the unification of Risorgimento, which has been memorialized as the greatest manifestation of Italianism in the world? So if everything was great, why then, less than 20 years later, 10 years later, do people that never left their ancestral towns start to flee in numbers that were earth-shattering for the society there and, and, and even shocking to the system in this country? I mean, what's that about? Right. So John is starting to touch on an accepted story, one that we've all been taught in both Italy and America. Southern Italy was poor, backward, and it had always been that way, which is why our ancestors left it. But John brings up a great point. Why did Southern Italians suddenly leave, seemingly all at once, if the place had been so horrible for centuries? What happened in the years immediately preceding this mass immigration? Far from being a backward, hopeless region, Southern Italy was, in fact, its own prosperous kingdom, with the city of Napoli on par with Paris and London and places like Sardinia and Palermo as great exporters of a wide variety of goods. For centuries, Southern Italy was its own nation, intellectually vibrant, artistically fecund. I mean, it was no more a paradise than any other country in the world. 
but it was a far different place than the one that has been described to us. In his book Between Holy Water and Salt Water, Tommaso Astarita writes, quote, the anti-Bourbon campaigns of Italian nationalists added to the European perception of Southerners as barbaric savages unworthy of modern Europe. So in the North's desire to conquer the South, or what has traditionally been called unification, a narrative began to form to justify that conquest. Southern Italians were, quote, disgusting, debased, hateful, wicked, squalid, a people, in short, who needed to be saved. But is it possible that the story we've been told about our Southern Italian past, as well as the myth of unification with Garibaldi as the hero, is only part of the story? And perhaps one told from the perspective not of the people, but their oppressors. All right, now we're going to hear Pat talk more about this history. He's going to mention the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, which lasted from 1815 until 1860, and which was, and I'm just taking this from Wikipedia, quote, formed as a union of the Kingdom of Sicily and the Kingdom of Naples. The capitals of the two Sicilies were in Naples and in Palermo. The kingdom extended over the Mezzogiorno and the island of Sicily. In his book, In the Shadow of Vesuvius, A Cultural History of Naples, Jordan Lancaster notes that the integration of the kingdom of the two Sicilies into Italy, i.e. unification, changed the status of Naples forever. Quote, abject poverty meant that throughout Naples and southern Italy, thousands decided to leave in search of a better future. Many went to the United States, Australia, and Argentina. Pino Aprile, author of Terroni, which is basically the manifesto on this topic, writes, quote, I did not know that the kingdom of the two Sicilies was, up until the moment of the aggression, i.e. unification, one of the most industrialized countries in the world. It stood in third place behind England and France prior to the invasion. Again, he's referring to unification. Okay, so to sum up, Southern Italy, before unification, was a united kingdom of its own, its own independent state and a cultural and industrial powerhouse. This depopulated what had been a very, very successful, in many ways, a, a very wealthy, a very prosperous part of the European continent, and certainly had issues, as all countries did in, in those uh, years, as they were going through these pains of being a state versus a so nation. Or still had exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Well said. So, what what people don't talk about is. This, the historical record has made it seem like a backwater, an evil, despotic backwater. And it being Southern Italy. It being Southern Italy that was saved and rescued by enlightened compatriots from the North. And what we would say is, well, for our purposes, if 87% of the Italian-American community is a Southern diaspora, if 87% of our 25 million find their roots in the South, why is it so overwhelmingly... In those, why is so overwhelmingly southern this diaspora, and what caused this sudden outpouring of population from a land that had never been a net exporter of immigration? And so then you start to dig further, and you start to understand that this unification was not this beautiful, blessed union of italic brothers and sisters from around the peninsula. It was a conquest. It was a colonization. And the statistics pan that out. And then what happens afterwards, in the 10 years afterwards, the civil war that in the historic record of Italy has been termed brigandage is really a civil war. It was really a, a, a freedom fight by Southern patriots. And it was brutally, brutally repressed with some of the first uh, concentration camps in the history of the world in southern Italy or, or northern Italy. So the, the more you scratch, the more you come to realize that it's not just our ancestors wanted a better life. They had circumstances that certainly, let me say it this way, 
life was going to be better in America. There was better opportunity in America, but that was because of this very unspoken problem in the unification of Italy. And so our work in this neo-Bourbon movement is to say, because it's, it's even repressed in the south of Italy, let alone here in this great diaspora, is to say to people, hey, don't take for granted that the historical narrative that says our part of this continent was this simple, agricultural, despotic, conservative wasteland that was saved. Ask what it really was and do the historical research to figure out what it really was and why we ended up here. Why did we leave? And why did our ancestors leave? And what was lost? Yeah, that was that, that was well put. And I think I kind of want to like pause for a second, only to kind of break down what you just said. Yeah. Make sure, yeah, uh, like people yeah, actually I mean, take that in. I, mean, I, I can <laughs> I can talk because I, I don't know a lot about all this stuff. So I think it's, it'll be good perspective. Um, but like John said, I think most of the people that we talk to or listen to the podcast, if you get into some of this. Their thought is exactly what John just said. Right. My family was poor. They couldn't eat. They lived on a farm. It was just a terrible place. It was, oh, the pain, the memory, and all the stuff, what I've heard. But this is enlightening in right. that it wasn't like that all the time. And it wasn't intrinsically part of the place. Like, there's this sense, there's also this sense, too, of, of shame. And I would say, from a southernist perspective, that shame has been imposed on the South. But this idea that somehow, our collect, you know, I'm going to forget Banfield's work on the south of Italy basically said we were not a people capable mm. of civilization, essentially, right. of civic mindedness. And it's like, wait a minute, how does that make any sense? And if things were so intrinsically bad in this place, why did families stay in one town for a thousand years? Right. For thousands of thousands of years in most cases. Right. No, you didn't see any movement. And and granted, that's part of the human condition. I understand that, you know, people were less mobile. But why did things get up to that point and then break? Was it a progressive break or was there some cleaving of society? And then, like, when you go back and you do the details of it, you go, okay, well, this was a society that was very religious. It relied on the church. The, the land is porous, so services from the government couldn't be provided from a central point. And the church, in partnership with the royal family, the monarchy, provided a lot of services, schooling, hospitals, uh, care for the poor in these, in these towns. When the unification happens, the church is repressed in the south. The monasteries are closed and sold off. The schools and hospitals, they're shuttered, and the, the properties are taken on and, and, and sold for the benefit of the state. Well, you basically have your whole society at that point closed. So imagine if we woke up one day right. and mm -hmm. somebody from California was here in New York and said, okay, you're going to do it this way now. You don't have schools, you don't have hospitals, and the church is closed. Right. It's like they nuclear bombed. Yeah. A thousand year old society. And to follow up on what John said, because I know there's going to be somebody out there who says that there's a, there's a Pollyanna esque spin that we're putting on this in the sense that the Bourbon kingdom of the two Sicilies was a land of milk and honey and people lived to lives of leisure and in economic prosperity. Europe, the world was poor. <laughs> Lower Manhattan, point, yeah. this parts of Lower Manhattan that still had outhouses right. on the eve of World War One. Apartment tenement buildings that are today still standing, that were six, seven-story buildings that didn't get into a plumbing until the eve of World War One. Poverty was not something that was a unique facet only had in the south of Italy. But to bring something else up is sure, there are people who left Italy in severe poverty. But some of the poorest people were from the north of Italy. If you look at Veneto and Piemonte and Liguria in the time before the unification of the South, of the unification, quote unquote unification of Italy in 1861, there was more poverty in pockets of the north of Italy. The north, the north of Italy was no better off, if not worse off, than the south of Italy. And if you try to tell someone today that Veneto and Liguria and Piemonte were poorer than Campania. For someone who's only read the Italian government textbooks and the general story, it's laughable. But it's really not. Mm. Because there was... And then it gets worse. Hot. Yes. It gets worse because then it's compounded by the fact that then, not only will you whitewash history to say that can't be the case, but then you'll go a step further to say it's 
intrinsically the case because of the condition of Southern Italians. Because there's something in the nature of Southern... It's that whole mythology right. of Italy ends at Rome and Africa starts at Naples and mm. all this racism that's tied to it. Don't forget there's racism in this. I mean, these people who are fighting a, a guerrilla war to free their homeland, they're lambasted and pasted with this title brigand, they're slaughtered. I mean, whole villages slaughtered. They're now, just nowadays, thanks to the work of Pinot Brillet and a lot of research that's coming out, they're taking these people's names off of piazzas in the towns. I mean, they, they would massacre kids, whole kids, trying to get the, the fathers to come out of hiding in the mountains, and then they get a statue built of them. Not only were they doing that, they were doing eugenic studies on their skulls. Are these people like us? What are? What, I mean, you're talking about stuff that in any other society would be beyond repugnant, and in Italy, it's just coming out. And our job is to say, if it's hard enough to get the word out in Italy, because you, you know, no, Nate, look, we're we're still battling. It's 2017. Last week, they took down statues to Southern Civil War heroes in, in New Orleans, and they're finally taking down statues to these uprisings against African-Americans in New Orleans in the, in the 1910s. I mean, you know, we're dealing with it in America. So obviously dealing with it in Italy is, is hard. But we as a diaspora, we have all the freedom to talk about it and to dig into these things. And we are the direct, literal byproduct of it because we wouldn't have come here. So we have to do that for ourselves, for our own identity. You know, I just want to make one more follow-up on what John said. There's a long, I think that the post- quote-unquote 1870 unification, Cavour mentality of we must form Italians, uh, is a whitewashing of a reality. And the reality, the elephant in the room that no one wants to acknowledge is that the North and South of Italy are two separate nations. They always were. The South of Italy was an independent kingdom for about a thousand years. And if you look at the roots of the culture... Why does someone from, uh, I have a neighbor who's from, her family's from, she's from an immigrant from Perdifumo, her and her husband, which is outside of Agropoli, and she said that her mother, who was born and raised in Cilento and Salerno, went to live with her sister who was working in Torino. So she would work some of the time in Torino with one child and then come to America and New Jersey and spend the rest of the year with another child. Mm-hmm. And she used to say to her daughter, I feel much more comfortable in America than I do in Torino. Mm-hmm. And, and this is nothing against Piemonte or the, or the people of that region, but she felt a, a cultural disconnect because there is a cultural disconnect because the south of Italy is Mani Grecia. The culture of the south of Italy is probably much closer to Greece than it is to Piemonte. What Pat's getting to here is something I think many Italian-Americans and certainly Southern Italians feel innately. I mean, speaking for myself growing up, I could never identify my Italy with the Italy in magazines like Vogue or movies where American movie stars were in Florence or Venice experiencing that Italy. I mean, I remember my parents had uh, friends. There were this couple. And when I was a little girl and they would come over, they always seemed so strange to me they were they were almost exotic i mean they were so super nice and they were a part of our family but they were from northern italy and at the time of course i didn't understand these differences all i really understood was we were italian and supposedly these people too were also italian but our two Italys were so different. I mean, everything from the way they dressed to the way they spoke to the way they carried themselves. I remember I couldn't even understand the husband when he spoke because, again, what I didn't understand at the time was he was speaking proper Italian and Northern Italian. And in my household, of course, we spoke the Neapolitan dialect. So they seemed to me like from another place. And what we're going to get into here for the rest of this episode is the fact that Southern Italian culture is its own, separate from Northern Italy's, just as I suspected as a little girl, although could not verbalize. And more importantly, that despite the fact of what history has tried to tell us about Southern Italian culture and Southern Italian people, and their worth, our culture is worthy of respect, admiration, and pride in its own right. 
and the history that we know why. We don't have to scratch. We know that the south of Italy was Monte Grecia. There was a lot of nationalities that formed it. But the worldview, the culture is closer to Greece than it is to the north of Italy. And the purpose of this conversation is not to rewrite history. It's to open the conversation that people on their own can, can discover, at least in my opinion, that there's a much bigger question, there's a much bigger conversation to be had about Italy and, and, and a united Italy and unification and what caused immigration to the United States. Now, if you look at the Bourbon Kingdom, the Bourbon Kingdom, there's a strong Italo-Albanian presence. So when it was the 14th or 15th century, Albanians, Christian Albanians, in fear of, of, of the Turkish occupation of Albania, being able to maintain Christianity, fled to, were, were welcomed as refugees into South Italy. There was no pressure for them to lose their culture. So that the Italo Albanians, 600 years later, have maintained their language, have maintained their culture, and maintained their religion. In next door to other southern Italians, the parts of, um, I guess it was the southern Frosinone, Italian roots, I forgot where, where they spoke Provençal, or parts of Puglia where they spoke the Greconico. The south of Italy was a mosaic of these different nationalities. And can a united Italy, if the united Italy is going to take the idea of, of acknowledging regions and nations within the whole European quote-unquote project, does the south of Italy not deserve to be recognized? Is it not unique enough to be recognized as a separate nationality? Because let's remember, for a good chunk of time, the Iberian Peninsula was one country. We have Portugal now, we have Spain. But the Iberian Peninsula could have gone down the same road. And because the modern map does not recognize separate nationalities for Italy, right. had the same thing happened on the Iberian Peninsula, would we be saying today that no, Portugal is really just the poor coastal cousin of Spain? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to have these open intellectual discussions mm -hmm. because if we don't and we only follow the narrative, we will not be able to ameliorate all the problems that are now facing the south of Italy, right. which, which, which they are, unless we look at the root causes and realize that there's many different facets to the story that's been told. And not just to tell the south, for our community, because right. here's what bothers me. You go back to Italy and you order something and you say something like mozzarella and somebody says to you, oh, that's the Italian-American slang and it's ugly and it's not. No, it comes from a regional language. These are regional linguistic markers that we took with us. So if this is not us going back as the dumb country cousin. This is our culture. Our culture has been attacked in Italy and many of the people that are left in that geography don't even realize that it's their culture and they will make fun of it too. But frankly, but for the uh, turn of history, this would have been the language of an independent country. I have said time and time again that Naples is the Barcelona of Italy. Naples, there's six million people in Campania. If you add on some people in Southern Lazio and Molise and a little bit of Calabria, who basically all speak different dialects of the same Neapolitan-based language, we're probably population-wise the same as Catalonia. If a Catalan went into a bar or a restaurant anywhere in Spain and spoke with a Catalan accent or spoke in Catalan, would they be mocked the way a Neapolitan is mocked when they go into the north of Italy? So that's my question Would to they? Italians. No, I don't. I'm not, I mean, and that's my question to Italians is that right. Catalonia has bilingual schools. Catalonia has Catalan newspapers. Gotcha, gotcha. Catalonia has always yeah. respected its language. There is no one in Italy right. with any serious academic credentials who can say that Neapolitan is not a separate language. But right. we probably, Neapolitan music, which was written in Neapolitan, which continues to be written in Neapolitan, Neapolitan theater, Neapolitan literature, I mean, we had a tremendous theatrical uh, patrimony written in Neapolitan. No one can look at that and say, this is not a language and this is not a culture. Right. All of these regional yeah. languages. Well, I think if the way you're just, you know, the way you're describing this, which is kind of why we wanted to do this show, is it's an oppression. It's a country being taken over. 
and the people being doesn't know it's there. Exactly, exactly. The people being taken over, and I think if you want to just look at that on a general scale, one of the most aggressive things you can do to a people when you want to obliterate them is take away their language slowly but surely. And I see it even now with my cousins in Italy. We'll Skype, we'll FaceTime. They have little kids. They tell me, no, they don't. She doesn't speak dialect. Just proper Italian. Just proper Italian. And then it'll tell you know every now and then she hears, she picks up a word so she throws it in there. But I can tell they don't want their young babies speaking the dialect. No. Just an entire generation that is now going to grow up. I don't know. Maybe knowing the dialect. Maybe not knowing the dialect. But it's certainly being impressed on them that they should not speak their dialect. And here's the problem with that. To me, it's one thing if a country. That has been unified for 150 years says media's efficiency, but we're all going to speak a, a language. But the problem is the differences linguistically manifest themselves in the north as pride movements, and let's get Venetian language in the mm-hmm. schools, and let's make it official, and they go out and rally, and they're proud of it. And in the south, it's a shame, and you should be ashamed of it because you should absolutely stupid. right. And That's it's, right. And the bottom line is right. the southern language has. Target markers that, that, that are from the earliest evolutions of Latin and vernacular Latin into other languages. And it's one of the, I mean, Sicilian is far older than most of these other regional languages in Italy and, and so unique. And Neapolitan uh, as well. And yet they're somehow shameful. And it's even worse when we come back like knuckleheads because we don't know any better and we spend all this money as tourists and we, we say, hey, we love Italy and Italy loves us and we use these few words that we know to feel like participants in this country and you get met with like, oh, you're silly and you talk like an idiot. That's really what they're saying. Right. And it's because your people were somehow this uneducated, unwashed mass. And it's like, no, we were refugees fleeing a very, very bad unification with an ancient language, with ancient traditions that now you've told us and you've told our cousins here and, and we've been told overseas was a bad culture to begin with. And I say to Italian Americans, you're not speaking wrong. You're speaking regionally and you don't know any better. And you should be proud of that because in you is like that, that right. mosquito in amber in Jurassic Park. In you is what's left of this culture. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and the Italian should be screaming to save it. Okay, so that's it for this first part in this series. Uh, Of course, we really hope you enjoyed this and learned some new things just as we did. It's just a start, and certainly we tried our best to make this as digestible as possible in one episode. But the conversation with Pat and John and Anthony continues in our next installment where we will talk some more about this idea of southern italian shame a little more about the history more about the bourbons and neo-bourbonism and of course how we as italian americans can support southern italy and our fellow southern italians It is now time for the Italian American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations. We try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives, or even read something that a listener submitted. As I mentioned earlier in today's segment, Dolores is going to do a reading, an excerpt from one of the books that we mentioned in our discussion with John Viola and the O'Boyle brothers. And the book is called Between Saltwater and Holy Water by Tommaso Astarita. So here's Dolores. So this passage is a good, solid historical background about what happened after unification, which, of course, we touched on in this episode many times. So the title of this chapter is The South as Part of the Italian Nation. And there's a quote at the beginning of it, which is from a Neapolitan song dated 1925. America costs us tears to us Neapolitans. For us who cry for the sky of Naples, how bitter is this bread? What? What is money? For he who cries for his fatherland, it is nothing. Now I have a few dollars, and yet I have never felt so poor. I, who have lost country, family, and honor, 
I am meat for the slaughter. I am an emigrant. And that's from a song entitled Lacrime Napolitane, and that's Neapolitan Tears. Okay, so before I start reading, just a quick note. The term brigands is used throughout this chapter, and as John mentioned in the episode, that title can be subject to interpretation. The brigands were called such by the northern invaders, as some would say, but they were heroes, as others would say, defending their southern Italian homeland. So just keep that in mind as I move forward here. Garibaldi, though originally a radical Republican, eventually accepted royal leadership for the unification of Italy that followed his conquest in the south. However, when his forces advanced into Sicily on their way to the mainland and Naples, the message that resonated with the island's rural masses was one of freedom, and they took this to mean freedom from their oppressive landlords. In early August of 1860, the peasants of the Sicilian town of Bronte, like those of many other estates, rebelled against their distant English masters and the local elites who controlled most of the land. In Bronte, the rebels looted the homes of wealthy locals, killed one of the town guards and several residents, and set the local theater, the town archive, and several elite residences on fire. These events deeply troubled Garibaldi. Sicilian elites were by then rallying to his cause and abandoning their king. Northern radicals had no idea of the actual conditions of the southern peasantry and no appreciation of its plight and of its hatred for its exploiters. The peasants of Bronte seemed savages who endangered victory and unification. The British consuls in Sicily urged Garibaldi to intervene. On August 6th, Nino Bixio, one of Garibaldi's lieutenants, arrived in Bronte and declared a state of siege. Bixio's troops imposed order, and on August 9th, he issued a warning to the local population, quote, either you remain calm or we, as friends of the fatherland, will destroy you as enemies of mankind, end quote. On August 10th, Bixio had several peasants shot without any judicial inquiry into their individual responsibility for the violent events. Numerous other executions that summer helped restore order in the Sicilian countryside. The suppression of the rebellions in Bronte and elsewhere sealed the support of Sicilian landlords for unification. The Bronte events reveal the major themes of Southern history after unification, rural exploitation, ignorance, and poverty. The disenfranchisement of Southern masses and the prevalence of elite and Northern interests Italian unification brought no real social or economic change. None of its leaders wanted a revolution in that sense. In their struggle for unification, northern Italian nationalists had embraced a view of the South as backward and of its government as the antithesis of all that modern Europe cherished. Northern Italians made themselves look both modern and European by denouncing the conditions and character of the South. This was not a recipe for careful analysis of the deep causes and features of Southern problems. Thus, when unification came, the leaders of the new Italian kingdom had no clear understanding of Southern circumstances, let alone an effective plan to alleviate them. Northerners who visited the South were shocked by what they saw. Violence, poverty, superstition, corruption. Illiteracy was above 80% across the South. It proved difficult even to see Southerners as Italians. Shortly after entering Naples, Bixio himself wrote to Prime Minister Cavour that, quote, Neapolitans are a bunch of Orientals. They understand nothing but force. In October 1860, Luigi Carlo Farini, one of Cavour's agents in the South, wrote the Prime Minister, quote, what lands are these? Molise in the South. What barbarism. This is not Italy. This is Africa. Compared to the peasants, the Bedouins are the pinnacle of civilization. End quote. Here was an alien population, wretched and uncivilized after decades of misrule, lazy and largely unworthy of the benefits of culture and progress that unification would undoubtedly bring. 
The violent rural events that accompanied the conquest proved only the first evidence that something was terribly wrong in and with the South. Unification was followed by protracted rural warfare, which caused more deaths than all the independent struggles between 1848 and 1861 combined. Bands of rural brigands fought against the national armed forces, and the area of the countryside remained outside government control until the late 1860s. The government suspected the clergy and the Bourbon court in exile in Rome of supporting the insurgency. Dynastic loyalty and hostility to the secular policies of northern leaders indeed played a role in the first year or so after the conquest, when Bourbon supporters led armed bands to take over several villages and towns and raise the Bourbon flag. This early phase saw the participation of many soldiers and officers of the disbanded Bourbon army, who found no alternative employment. The scale of the insurgency led the government to speed up administrative centralization and quickly to impose northern laws, institutions, and practices on the South. At the end of 1861, an amnesty led over 20,000 former soldiers to abandon their struggle against the new government. But rural brigandage remained active as its wellsprings were the abject poverty of rural people, their long-standing hostility to urban and central forces, and their resistance to conscription and new heavier taxation. Brigands kidnapped travelers for ransom, sacked farms and villages, assaulted coaches, damaged crops, and killed livestock. Land travel in the South and Sicily became virtually impossible. In August 1863, the Parliament passed a severe law that placed almost the entire South under military law. Summary executions and arbitrary arrests ensued. By late in 1863, about 100,000 soldiers were fighting to restore order in the South. Thousands were arrested and thousands killed. The victims of brigands were also numerous, though we have no reliable figures. By the end of 1865, the number of soldiers involved in the repression was down to about 40,000, and military government expired after that year. But rural violence continued, and bands of brigands operated in mountainous and wooded areas for the rest of the decade. The fight against brigandage in the 1860s confirmed the image of Southerners as alien to civilization and fundamentally foreign to Italian and European identity. Repression was based on a view of bandits as subhuman. Quote, this rabble of fearsome beasts whose only human characteristic is their bodily form, end quote, is how an army lieutenant described them in 1865. The severity of punishments also expressed the old stereotype of Southerners as easily swayed and in need of determined guidance. The brutal war against the brigands increased the fear and disgust governing elites felt for the Southern masses. The institutions of the new Italian state added to the alienation between the government and the governed. Italy's franchise was one of Europe's most limited. Age, literacy, and income requirements ensured that only about 2% of the population, or 8% of adult men, had the right to vote. The rate was lowest in the poorer, less educated South. Reform in 1882 raised the percentage of voters to about 7% of the population. 8.2% in the North, and 5.5% in the South. Only in 1912 would most Italian men receive the right to vote, though the voting age for the illiterate, 30, remained higher than for the literate, 21. Since over 60% of Italy's voters were then illiterate, this was not a minor difference. Most Southerners thus remained outside the political system. Equal universal male suffrage only came in 1919, and female suffrage in 1946. Restricted suffrage meant that, as the politician Sidney Sonnino put it in 1881, quote, the vast majority of the people feel estranged from our institutions. They see themselves as subjects of the state, end quote. The result was to perpetuate Southern poverty. The economic circumstances of the Southern rural population and of the urban poor of Naples remained miserable. The expropriation of some church land in the 1860s only strengthened the traditional southern latifondi, large estates that employed landless laborers in conditions that had changed little since feudal times. 
The large scale of public and church land to private owners in the decades after unification increased the pace of deforestation with tragic results in terms of peasant life, especially more frequent landslides and the greater spread of malaria. In the 1880s, an agrarian crisis across Europe due to easier maritime transport and the resulting availability of cheap Russian and American grain brought debt and decline to many Southern aristocratic families and further diminished the economic prospects of Southern peasants. In the 1880s in Basilicata, fewer than half the children lived past the age of 15. Peasant misery fed turmoil in Sicily in 1893 to 94, led by a local socialist movement. The government responded to the agitation by declaring a state of siege and by military repression that took the lives of about 100 Sicilian peasants. Persistent rural poverty and the suppression of brigandage were among the causes of large-scale rural emigration. Starting in the 1870s and in growing numbers between the 1880s and World War I, Southern Italians began leaving their villages and seeking their livelihood abroad. The Southern scholar and politician Francesco Saverio Nitti noted that many Southerners fell under, quote, a sad and fatal law, either emigrants or brigands. End quote. Between 1901 and 1913, about 200,000 Southerners left Italy every year, 90% of them leaving Europe altogether. They included 1 million Sicilians out of an island population of about 3.5 million. All right, so I hope you enjoyed this episode. We certainly enjoyed recording it. It's a really interesting topic to us and hopefully to you as well. And this is the first episode in this series and the continuation will be in next episode. So with that, I'm going to kick it back to Dolores and she's going to take us out. Okay, Amici, just a reminder that there's still plenty of room for you in the new neighborhood, a place for Italian Americans. If you want to hear more about the new neighborhood, you can visit italianneighborhood.com. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. We always appreciate those, and they certainly help the show get more exposure. Lastly, you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram at Italian American. We're on Twitter at Ital American. And we're on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Va bene! 